word. So we won't sit down unless you want to sit down and then stand up again immediately. Acts 4, verse, uh, Acts 4, verse 32. We don't always stand when we uh, read God's word together, but sometimes we do in honor of God and his word. So let's do that today. Acts 4, verse 32. You follow along as I read. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Now you may be seated, please. This is the 75th anniversary of the release of The Wizard of Oz. Um, I wonder maybe if you have seen it as many times as I have. Back in the old days, when there were only four television stations, uh, we used to watch it every year, because it was on every year, and it was a a highlight of the season. Uh, There's a scene towards the end of The Wizard of Oz that... I think people who watch it can make an instant connection. You you see happening up on the screen what you actually fear might someday happen in your own life. Toward the end of the movie, as I said, Dorothy and the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and the Lion have been ushered into the presence of the great and terrible Oz. They've walked down that long hall. They've, They've walked into this that large chamber, and and in front of them is that creepy-looking holographic head floating there in, in in, in the stage in front of them, surrounded by shooting flames. In his booming voice, he talks about being in the presence of the great and powerful Oz. In this scene, it's towards the end of the movie, they're being rebuffed, they're being sent away. They're cowering and complaining at the same time when Toto leaves the group and he walks over to uh, this strange curtain that is there on the side. And, And Toto, trained dog that he is, pulls back the curtain to find standing behind the curtain a very short, a little chubby, a very old man. Uh, pushing buttons and speaking to a microphone. And, and as, as he discovers that he has been discovered, uh, Oz, the great and powerful, says this line. You know it, right? Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Well, Toto undid the whole thing. The man uh, behind the curtain is really Oz. Oz has been unmasked. He's not great and powerful. He doesn't have flames shooting out. He's not a floating head. He's a short, chubby old guy, Oz. Well, I think everyone at some point in time fears being unmasked like that. There's, there's this fear. Somebody's going to see behind the curtain of my life. 
Maybe what happened, I'd, I'd see behind the curtain of your home if I went to your house tonight and, and uh, uh, saw what happens at your house around bedtime. Would there be a difference between the family that's on display on Sunday mornings and the family that happens at your house at bedtime? Or the family that happens that lives at your house when the third child is up for the fourth time, or maybe it's the fourth child up for the third time, you can't remember? Paul Tripp, with his famous line, says, uh, everyone in this house should know that all parenting ends at 9.30 p.m., and there will be no parenting after that time. And if you are awake, you are an unparented child. What if we pull back the curtain of your mind and we can project on the screen not lyrics but the thoughts that you have swirling through your mind? Oh, there is no one in this room who wants that to happen. This afternoon we're going to have a congregational meeting. Will you see behind the curtain of our church and see what we really love and how we really function and how we really treat one another? I just read a passage from the book of Acts that is the second of three scenes where we see behind the curtain in the early church. But what we see there is not a disappointment. In fact, what we see here is stunning. It's, it's beautiful. It, it is, in fact, better than we can imagine that behind the curtain, this is what this group of people would look like. This is the second scene. The first scene, we looked at a couple weeks ago. In the first scene, they gather together with one voice and fervently pray. pray. In the third scene, which, Lord willing, we're going to look at next week, the church deals with a moral crisis. This is not a perfect church at all. But here in the second scene, we see the story of how they cared for one another. Luke places descriptions like this throughout the book because he wants you to see, especially in these early chapters, he wants you to see what the Holy Spirit does in a group of people. How does he work? How does he transform? How does his presence make a difference in the lives of these men and women? And this is the image to which we aspire. Oh, I have the, the privilege of walking through a paragraph with you this morning and showing you something that is beautiful with the expectation and the realization that doing so this is, it is by this means that God, the Holy Spirit, can bring this about in us. That this might be true of us behind the curtain. Let's look quickly at one of the other descriptions of this, shall we, before, before we move on. Go back to Acts chapter 2, shall we? Um, I notice that these descriptions are here. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and look what it says there. Again, another scene behind the curtain. This is what it says about the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Some of the language is even the same, isn't it? Same thing was happening in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4. Luke is repeating himself, don't forget this. He wants you to, say that, to notice this. Don't forget, what does the Holy Spirit do in a group of people when they gather together in the name of Jesus? When they're for one another, when they're with one another for Christ's sake, 
What does the Holy Spirit do? We're looking because we want to read in the book of Acts. We want to see, as we walk through this book, we want to see how these early followers of Jesus functioned, how they strategized to spread the gospel around the world, and how they met with one another, and how, how they related to one another. And from these five verses back in chapter 4, what I want to do is I want to surface some characteristics of this church. We've been talking a lot about what marks them in recent days. Uh, they were a praying church. They are a worshiping church. They are a church that's devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Here are four more characteristics. And oh, we pray. We pray by his spirit that the Lord Jesus, our head, would build these in us too. So here are these four characteristics. Let's consider them. First of all, they are united. They're united. The text says all the believers, that is the whole community, your translation might say the full number of believers was one in heart and mind. All of them in their entirety together were in the Lord Jesus as believers and they were one in heart and mind. They were one in prayer. They lifted up their voices as one to pray earlier. Now they're one in heart and mind. Now what does it mean to be one in heart and mind? Jeremiah 23, uh, excuse me, Jeremiah 32, when God had first promised the Holy Spirit or in the, the continuing promises to send the Holy Spirit, he had said to them that their unity would be one of the signs of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Look what Jeremiah 32:39 says. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me and that all will go, then go well for them and for their children after them. Singleness of heart and action. This is, there's an intensity here that is surprising to us. Elise Fitzpatrick wrote in one of her books about how she and her husband several years ago went on a trip to Europe. It was a whirlwind trip, and they went through several countries. This was before the formation of the European Union. It was a number of years ago. And they went from country to country, and she said, we would drive into a country, and we would exchange some money, and we'd learn a few key phrases. We'd drop our suitcases off at the hotel, and then we'd go see everything they had to see. Uh, we would eat some of their food. Uh, we would talk to some of their people. We'd get back in our car, pack up, and drive on to the next country. We'd exchange our money. We'd learn a few key phrases. We'd go out and do the same thing. A little sampling here, a little sampling there. She says one of the problems it, it, that churches can have is that people in them develop the mindset, that same mindset of tourists, but they do it in church. They're ecclesiastical tourists. They go into a church just to see and sample and talk a little bit um, to uh, uh, sample the, 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 the quality of the meal they serve on Sunday and to talk to a few of the natives and, and um, uh, put some money in every, every now and then and then, then go off. She said, I saw these beautiful things. We did all these wonderful sights, but you know, I really left unaffected, totally unchanged as a person in my character, by all the things I saw. And that's the way a lot of people go to church as tourists, just to dip their toe a little bit in the Jesus people. And the problem with that is that you never, you never develop oneness of mind and, and heart if that's the mindset that you have, if that's the practice that you have. You, you'll never know what this is like under those circumstances. I wonder if you've ever experienced something like this, this oneness of heart 
and oneness of mind. Did you see it? You probably did. It was all over uh, social media in the, the last uh, few weeks. Um, not too long ago, a man in Australia, it was Perth, Australia, was getting off of a subway and he stumbled a little bit for some reason and he fell while the subway was in the station. He fell and one of his legs, his left leg, went down in the space between the subway and the platform. And uh, his, his body and the rest of his leg was sitting on the subway car, and one of his legs was dangling down uh, in that very tight space. It, it fell down, but he couldn't pull it back up, and he was stuck there. This would be a horrifying experience. Well, there was somebody on the, uh, one of the subway employees was on the uh, track, um, on the platform, saw what had happened, and they, they stopped the train, so they weren't going to leave the train, but he was still stuck there. What are they going to do? Well, somebody came up with the idea that if they maybe pushed the train up a little bit, if they could get it to rock, that they would be able, that he would be able to pull his leg back out. So the security camera catches this image. They start. A few people push. Not enough. More people push. Finally, they get dozens and dozens of people on the count of three. One, two, three, and they push the train up, and it moves just enough that the guy can pull his leg out, and he's safe. And everybody cheers, and they go on their way, and they're gone and off. That group will never be assembled like that under those same circumstances in that way again. For a few minutes, they were one in heart and mind, but now it's over. That seems to be maybe one of the challenges of this this passage, isn't it? You can have moments where we're one together, but it doesn't seem to last always. Well, I think, though... um, that the text gives us a clue about how this lasted in the early church. It didn't mean they were perfect. It didn't mean they didn't have any problems. But the, the text itself is giving us a clue about how you can be one in heart and mind over the long haul. Uh, through a number of different seasons. Through a number of different years. The text says they were one in heart and mind. The words translated heart and mind are the same words that are used in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Greek translation of Deuteronomy 6, where it has the great Shema of Israel. The word Shema in Hebrew is the word hear. And every day, faithful Jews would quote that, that passage of Scripture. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. Or in the Greek translation, through to English, heart and mind and strength. Every day, these devout Jews, who are now followers of Jesus, had been quoting to themselves these lines, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind. And now the text says they are one in heart and mind. Why are they now one in heart and mind? They're one in heart and mind because they loved the same person. This is not a group of people who just naturally come together. This is not a group of people who come together because they love the snacks they serve. This is not a group of people who get together because it's convenient or easy. They come together because of the Lord Jesus. He's the one that they love. He's the one that they're called to serve. And they serve and love one another for his sake. They're one in heart and mind because they're all facing the same direction toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you need proof of their unity, let's move on to the second quality that this passage mentioned. Secondly, this is a generous church. It's a generous congregation. They're united and they're generous. 
And most of this uh, paragraph describes in detail how uh, they used their resources, how some of them who were wealthier in the church sold the houses and the land that they owned and gave the money to the church for uh, those in need. Now, Luke could have used other evidences of their unity, couldn't he? He could have described in detail their prayer meetings. He could have described in detail um, how they gathered for the apostles' teaching and what that looked like and, and what was said when they met. He could have described how they broke bread with one another, how they organized it. Um, but instead, he focuses on this generosity. We have to be careful as we read this text. There are some people who look at this and they say, well, this church was just, was just foolish. See, in, a, in a, a few months or years, when we get to the end of Acts, what we're going to discover is that these brothers and sisters in Palestine experienced a famine. One of the things that Paul did when he traveled around to the Gentile areas around the Mediterranean Sea is he raised money for them because uh, they were starving back in Jerusalem, the Christians were. Some people look at this passage and say, well, if they'd saved a little bit more, they maybe wouldn't have had so many problems. They point this out as a foolish act. The problem with that is that Luke never does that. It's certainly not Luke's opinion of what was going on. Some people look at this passage and they bring up to mind again, uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago, I think, that this is an example of Christian communism. No private property, sell what you own and give it to the state or the collective and the collective will make sure that everybody has what they need. Well, this is not Christian communism either. For a number of reasons, it was voluntary. Not everybody did this. In fact, in Acts chapter 12, uh, when uh, they gather together at their home of a believer whose name is Mary, she owned a house that she apparently did not sell, uh, and uh, so the church continued to meet there. In Acts chapter 5, when we get there next week, Lord willing, Peter's going to say to Ananias, the land you sold, that was yours. You could have done anything you wanted with it. So this is voluntary generosity in the part. It's not Christian communism. It's voluntary. It's, it's organized, isn't it? Um, this is not an example here of the early believers selling a house and then bringing 20s to church and just passing them out. That's not how that worked. Uh, they brought the money or in an organized way and put it at the feet of the apostles. It is a symbol of I'm surrendering this to the use of the Lord Jesus. And then the apostles knew in some way who in the church had need and uh, distributed it. Either they did or somebody working underneath them. It was a very organized managed system, and it was need-based, too. It was voluntary, it was organized, it was need-based. They did it from time to time. When needs were made known to the people, this is how they responded. This happens in our congregation all the time. Uh, we, we just finished, didn't, did we not, last month, uh, a, well, actually earlier this month, a, a special offering to distribute um, Bibles to people in Haiti. So we raised money for that. That was um, missions-minded. We don't do this as often as we used to, but we used to have uh, regularly special offerings. One year at, during the month of November, we collected money for the widows in our church who had need. And the elders had a list of um, men and women, widows and widowers who had particular needs. We let the congregation know, and the congregation responded generously to those needs. Yesterday, I got an email, and this happens to me, three or four times a year, I got an email from somebody in the church who said to me, if you know of anybody in the church who has special needs, please let me know because I'd like to anonymously help. 
It's easy to preach this passage in this congregation because we have men and women who who do this. Now, I don't want to dismiss it as foolishness. I don't want to push it off and say this is uh, not Christian communism. What I do want you to see, though, is notice how radically the attitude of the people toward their money has changed. How do people normally think about money? Uh, Well, um, if I have, this is normal, right? If I have more money, that means I can buy more stuff for myself. More resources means a bigger house, a better car, newer clothes, more electronics. More money equals more stuff. And I need the stuff because if I have the stuff, it will make me happy. Um, It will make me the envy of my town. It will make me more important than other people. It will give me security. So more money equals more stuff. The Bible is certainly aware of that attitude, isn't it? And it knows that this is the, the baseline of how people think. In fact, Jesus identifies money and the craving for it as one of the greatest spiritual dangers that we face. It's one of the chief reasons Jesus said that certain people are not going to be in heaven. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. Paul warned us about the love of money. Beware of the love of money because it is the root of all kinds of evil. Jesus said you cannot love God and love money at the same time. If you love money, you hate God. See how radically this attitude toward money has been changed in this church? The money itself is not the problem. It's our attitude toward the money that we have. As our love for money grows and flourishes, as we nurture it in our hearts, we are revealing the disconnect that we have that's endemic to us all, that is natural to us all, this disconnect from God. Money and the things that you can buy with it, I dare say, are the greatest competitors in your mind and heart for affection for God. Uh, See, when the Bible talks about sin, it doesn't limit sin to just disobeying God, just the, the things that we do. It also speaks about sin as dishonoring God by valuing something more than Him, taking pleasure in something more than Him, dreaming about being satisfied in, hoping in something other than Him. And, and this natural attitude that we have, more money, more stuff, and I'll be happy. It's just revelatory in our hearts of the disconnect from God, the sin in us that is natural. John Calvin said, While all men seek after happiness, scarcely one in a hundred looks for it from God. Here's evidence, more evidence that we're, we're disconnected from God. But here there is this radical reorientation toward money. They don't have the mindset that if I have more money, I can get more stuff. Look what's happening. They're selling their stuff so they can have money that they're going to give away. It's a complete opposite attitude that we have than than most of us in our culture have toward money. They're getting rid of things so they have more to give away. This is something else that the Spirit actually does, doesn't it? He severs the connection, the power of money in our lives. 
we're going to talk about how in a minute, but I just want you to see something. They learned this new attitude toward money from Jesus himself. I think on the, it's on the back of that green sheet. I'm going to read a number of verses uh, that talk about um, our attitude towards money and how Jesus radically changes it. Look, there's a long list of them. Jesus talked about the poor and helping the poor a lot. Look at them. Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus said, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Luke 12.15. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Luke 12:33 to 34 Sell your possessions and give to the poor provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will never fail where no thief comes near and no moth destroys for where your treasure is there your heart will be also Luke 12:12 12, 12 to 14 Jesus said to his host when you give a luncheon or dinner do not invite your friends your brothers or sisters your relatives or your rich neighbors If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Luke 18.22 is conversation with a rich young ruler. You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Notice what Zacchaeus did. In Luke 19, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus' new attitude towards money was one of the signs that he was now trusting in the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ severs the power that money has over us. This is why we say with with strong confidence that if you are calling people to follow Jesus because Jesus will make them rich, you are not preaching about the Jesus from the Bible. Um, Jesus, this is what the Spirit of God does. He severs the power of possessions, and the fruit is overflowing generosity. Now, notice this third here in this passage about this congregation. This church is well-led. It's well-led. We'll talk in a little bit about uh, the leadership. In a few weeks, we'll talk about the verbal upfront leadership of Peter and John and James and the other apostles. But here, what we see in verses 36 and 37 is a man who leads by his example. We're introduced to this man named Joseph, commonly called Barnabas. Look at verses 36 and 37 again. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, Barnabas is one of the most commonly named characters in the book of Acts. This is the first time we meet him, and because this is the first time we meet him, we get some of his biography. He's a Levite. That is, he's of that tribe in uh, Israel, a descendant of Jacob's son, Levi. Every record we have of Levites from the first century uh, shows that they were well-educated and wealthy men. Uh, He is from Cyprus. He's not a native of Jerusalem. Cyprus is that island a little bit out from um, Palestine in the middle of the Mediterranean. And uh, so he is... Uh, visiting Jerusalem, and he's an encourager. Um, 
he had a nickname from the apostles. Barnabas is what they called him. Barnabas, Bar means son of, Nabas is related to the word for prophet. So he's not an encourager in the sense necessarily, he probably did this too, but this was not his, how he got his reputation from just quietly behind the scenes encouraging or writing people nice notes. Those are wonderful things. I'm not trying to diminish that at all. But Paul, uh, Barnabas, this Barnabas is an encourager because he stands up and he says to people with a loud voice, God, God will care for you. God loves you. God is at work in your life to make you like his son. That's the sort of encourager that he is. Now, he's introduced here for a number of reasons. One, he provides a good contrast with Ananias. We're going to learn about Ananias next week. And, um, well, Barnabas is somebody different here from him, for sure. The second reason he's here is he's, he's going to show up again in the, the rest of the book of Acts. And third, he's here to remind us that every congregation needs men and women like this who lead by their example. This week at our elders meeting on Thursday, the elders began the process that will uh, eventually result in us, the congregation, voting to select three new men to serve as elders. One of the requirements of elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 is not that they be perfect men, but that they be making evident progress as examples in the the virtues uh, to which God calls all of us. We have men and in, in women in our church who model this sort of care that Barnabas exhibits. There's a member of our church who for several years now, uh, the, time, the places that I saw her most often outside of this building was at funerals. Somebody in the church, their, their mother would die, their sister would die, their parent would die. And, and I would go to the visiting and always, always it seemed, this woman was there by her presence, seeking to encourage and, and care for those who are grieving. It, it always encourages me when I see uh, members of the church at, at moments like that. About the same time, I, I noticed that at weddings that, that were happening in our church, uh, when, when we have, you host a, a wedding in our church for your family, you can't invite the whole church. It's, it's often not, not feasible. But, but there was a couple who, who always seemed to be there. The crowd was different, different places, but there was this one couple that was just always there because they had in some way reached out and significantly encouraged or helped or invested in the life of that bride or that, that groom. There was that care that was expressed. I wonder what places there are that you're filling Barnabas was a hero in his generosity, and he's leading by example well in this church. I wonder what places you fill like that, what holes you fill. On Wednesday night, I was here, and the clubbers were coming from Awana, and the uh, Awana secretaries were sitting in the foyer. This is the first group of people from our church that clubbers see on Wednesday nights. And, oh, it was, it was excellent to hear these ladies welcome Awana clubbers coming and their parents. They were so warm and encouraging. Uh, and and I, got to, I, I thought to myself, if I was bringing my child to a, an unusual a church that I was not familiar with, and, and I was greeted like this, I'd be so happy to leave my children in their care because of the warmth with which they greeted them. Um, how, how do you take meals to, to care for someone? Is that the hole that, that you're filling? Maybe it's, it's in how you pray for a friend who is 
in need of encouragement. Here's this man who, who rose to prominence in the church because of the generosity that he displayed. There are, there are dozens of men and women in our church who, who fill holes here and there to, to provide for this, this beautiful scene in Acts 4. Now, I have, I have left a question unanswered until now that I want to answer right now. How, how is it that the Spirit of God transformed them so that they acted this way? How, what means did he use to make this church this sort of congregation? Uh, I skipped over verse 33. Look, look back at it with me, if you would, please. We'll read it again. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. There maybe could be a period there. Maybe not. My translation keeps it going. God's grace testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, why is verse 33 there? It doesn't need to be where it is. In fact, you could read right from verse 32 to verse 34 without it making any difference at all, couldn't you? All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Verse 34. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those, you see, it, makes, it almost makes more sense if you skip out verse 33, if you leave it out. Why is verse 33 here? Why did he interrupt this story of possessions with this verse about the preaching that was going on? I think Luke wants to remind us that this growing church was not, going to become, was not becoming so insular that they stopped from their mission of testifying about the Lord Jesus. If you are in a position of leadership in any capacity in a church, you feel this pull all the time. The pull between trying to care for the people who are already in the church and the call to go out and invite more people to become followers of Jesus Christ. There is always this tension. And Luke puts verse 33 in there to remind us, don't forget, they had not forgotten their mission. They were testifying about the resurrection. Now, this gives me another opportunity, doesn't it? To remind you of the centrality of the resurrection. That's what they're preaching how they summarize, how Luke summarizes the message of the apostles. And it gives me an opportunity to remind you that you have not really dealt with the claims of Christ. You cannot adequately dismiss them unless you have considered the resurrection itself. This is the historical, it's the tangible, it's the factual event that is central to our faith. It it either happened and, and we tell the truth about Jesus, or it didn't happen, and we're liars and fools, Paul says. The historicity of the resurrection means everything to us. And you don't, oh, be careful, of dismissing Christianity unless, until you deal adequately with this historical claim. See, when we talk to people about the gospel, when we talk to people about the good news of the Bible, we are not just telling them a story of sacrifice. A sacrifice is crucial, right? Uh, you, you can't pr- tell people about Jesus unless you mention sacrifice. We are all condemned by God in our deeds and our affections. We fall short of God's perfect standards and are deserving of death, God's eternal wrath because of our sin against him. 
But Jesus came and he offered himself as our sacrifice. He bore the penalty that we owed on the cross when he died for us in our place. It's a story of great sacrifice. But it's also a story of victory. He rose again from the dead. And his resurrection is the sign that sin and its penalty, death, has been defeated. And someday they're going to be gone forever. This is a victory story. How will your life be different in that day when sin and death are eradicated? I can't even conceive of how, how, how excellent it's going to be. Jesus Christ is not just a historical figure who lived once that we worship because he was a good guy. He is the risen Savior who is living, who is the master of all things. He reigns and rules over every cell in your body. He understands every circuit and every wire in that new iPhone 6 that you are lusting after. He knows every plan and every detail of what any state, any organization, any uh, dictator, any president in the whole world is, is planning. He knows all of their plans. And in fact, <laughs> whether they like it or not, he is weaving his own work through all of their plans. Jesus Christ is, is alive. He's, he's the ruling master of all things. And here, remembering that, reminding ourselves of that, is why or is how uh, the power of possessions is severed in our lives. How it changes how we think about money. If this life is all there is, if we experience here all the comfort and all the relief and all the luxury we will ever have, then you need to get every dollar you can and spend it on yourself to make yourself more comfortable. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, don't give any money to anybody else unless you need to to alleviate your guilt because you have so much of it. But otherwise, spend every dollar you have uh, getting a bigger house, uh, the softest pillow you can, you can find, the nicest clothes, the fastest car. In fact, if you're really smart, when, you, when you, you get to, you know, about 70 or so, just buy it all and borrow it because it'll, they won't come after you. You'll be dead, right? It'll be over. So spend everything you can uh, uh, accumulating for yourself what's going to make you comfortable if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But if Christ rose from the dead, this is not all that there is to life. This is not everything. There is an eternity to be had. There's an eternity to be enjoyed. There's an eternity that's going to make this life seem very short and the pleasures that we experience in it very small. It's like the difference between, the, between fireworks and the sun. I've talked about fireworks before. I love fireworks. Who doesn't love fireworks? Right? You go and you sit down on the grass and you look at what well, your dog, right? Your dog doesn't like fireworks. But anyway, uh, you, you sit on the grass and, or in your lawn chair and you look into the, the black sky and there's explosions of color, beautiful explosions of color. I love to look at fireworks. The longest fireworks show I have ever seen lasted about 45 minutes. And I maybe see them once or twice a year. But the sun, 
the sun comes up every morning and it paints the sky with orange and yellow and purple and it moves across the heavens, this dynamic, beautiful, yellow circle. And it gives light and warmth and health to everything as, as it moves across the sky. And then, again, when it, when it sets, it paints the sky again. Those same colors, orange and purple and yellow, these beautiful colors. Fireworks are good. I like fireworks. But they're nothing in comparison to the sun. The pleasures that you can buy for yourself in this earth are like fireworks and you should give thanks to God for the pleasure that they, 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 that they bring you. But it's just a spark. It's just a little light. It is not the sun. The sun is like eternity in its brilliance and glory. If you have the chance, and you have a lot of chances like this, use the money you have to invest in eternal realities. Set it before the Savior for his disposal, for the meeting of those around you. So the resurrection changes everything. It is enough. It is enough to unite us. And it is enough to make us generous people. Let's pray, shall we? Oh Lord, we come before you, and as your, your word says, you are the creator of the sun and you call it forth every day and it travels throughout the sky at your command. Um, you're the master of all things, including uh, eternity, life and death. You're the master of, of all peoples. And Lord, we confess to you, uh, we would... Gladly be submissive to you in how we use the resources that you have given us. Uh, Father, I thank you for the number of people in our congregation that they read this paragraph and they're living it out in so many ways in their great generosity. If, if they could, they, they could think about the houses that they don't own or the land that they don't have the cars that they're not driving, the clothes that they're not wearing, the phone that they're not using, because with great generosity, they faithfully give. Lord Jesus, would you make us attentive to the poor, those that you cared for so so dearly? And, and we pray that you would enable us to remind one another faithfully that you, you by your resurrection, have broken the power of money in our lives. Oh Lord, unite us with one heart and one mind that when people peel back the curtain of our congregation, they might be stunned like we are as we read from Jerusalem. Do that in us. Work this passage out by your power. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus saying, Amen.